Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very happy to have Stephen Coslin on today's show. Unfortunately, we had a little bit of trouble with my recording. My audio is a little low, so apologies for that. But overall, it's a great conversation, and we wanted to make sure everyone had a chance to listen. We hope you enjoy. Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very happy to be joined again by Dr. Stephen Coslin, the president and founder of Foundry College. Wonderful guest was on maybe a month and a half, two months ago, and uh, had so much to talk about that we wanted to bring him back. Stephen, welcome back to Trending in Education. Thank you, Mike. It's really a pleasure. Yeah. And when we were together last time, I would recommend folks, if they get a chance, listen to that episode. Uh, it gives a good overview of your storied career trajectory, which we can reference uh, as needed, and then also uh, gave a nice uh, summary of what Foundry College is doing, how it's structured, and how you approach uh, teaching online. Uh, and we can date back into some of those pieces as, as relevant. We talked about the power of synchronous. But uh, I hear you've been working on something new. I'd love to hear more uh, from you about what you've been up to and what you started to work on. I've been struck by how unsatisfactory a lot of the courses that were moved to Zoom ended up being. Yes. You know, there was this just sudden, I mean, it's nobody's fault. I mean, it's like, yeah. you know, all, all of three days to repair. Right. And it turned out that just giving your standard lecture on Zoom wasn't exactly captivating, wasn't particularly Effective. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've thought a fair amount about why. Right. And it, it seems to me that it, it really comes down to the science of learning. That is how the brain works. It, things didn't work out so well given that modality. So I'm writing a book, um, almost finished, first nice. draft. It's called Active Learning in the Digital Age currently. I don't nice. know if that'll end up being the title, but it, it's, it's about uh, six principles from learning science nice. and how to apply them online, online teaching. Awesome. I'm, I'm a, you, you had me at hello. Uh, I, was, uh, I was curious uh, right off, uh, even with the title, because uh, active learning, there's a lot to unpack in that turn of phrase, which has been around for quite some time. And you also had me at a listicle. Six items that we can talk through together, I think is a, is a fantastic way to structure uh, this conversation. We can begin a little more high level, even before you get into the six principles, what's the purpose of the book? What's the main point that the folks need to understand out there? The main point is that we should stop focusing so much on teaching and focus more on learning. Mm. And as soon as you do that, you start asking, well, how does learning actually work? Mm -hmm. And then you can actually return to teaching, but from the focus of what you should do to try to help students learn. That's fantastic. Yeah, because I've heard we talked about it on the show, the distinction between education and learning. I hadn't heard that about teaching, but I think that is also spot on in that it's really the, the teacher's job to understand the learner first. And, and then if you are truly learner-centric in how you're teaching and supporting the learner, it's really not about you, it's, it's about the learner. Right, so you know this old adage is it's easy to teach a thousand people with a lecture as 10 people, mm -hmm. which kind of really exposes what went wrong with the whole Zoom approach sure. of just giving lectures. I mean, you know, they scale beautifully. I mean, in, 
infinite number of people presumably could watch yeah. the same video, but they're not necessarily going to learn much. And, and right. you just hit on one reason why. Mm -hmm. Have you seen counterexamples to Zoom even within this window of time? I, I love the Gibson quote, the future is here now, it's just not evenly distributed. The okay. idea that there are places where the active learning that you're talking about, the really next-gen, personalized, learner-centered, even human-mediated, there's a teacher or a coach helping the learner through that experience, but it's really designed around uh, the learner. Uh, are there examples you've seen that are, are great counterpoints to, to Zoom? Yeah, well, Minerva is a good example, but you know, we built Foundry College with this in mind from the start. What struck me about it was that it, at Foundry, we built technology with active learning in mind to deliver the courses. Yeah. And I started thinking, well, say you didn't want to use that technology, uh, you just want to use Zoom or right. Blue Jeans or whatever, right. what kind of workarounds? Because mm -hmm. it, it wasn't built, Zoom was built yeah. as a general purpose video conferencing platform, not a teaching platform. Exactly. Yep. So it's not it's not set up in a way that affords, that makes it easy right. to do the kind of active learning that we know is so effective. Right, right. So a lot of what's in this book is kind of little workarounds, you know, how you use uh, CSV files in a spreadsheet oh, to set cool. up breakout groups in advance. It's short. It's yeah. going to be like 100, 120 pages long. It's very okay. short. Sure. It's an appendix, which has got every active learning technique I can think of or find. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sarah, but but the book is built around these principles because that's what makes active learning work. The active yeah. ingredient of active learning is the way the brain works. Right. I mean, that's why active learning is effective, right. that it plays into certain proclivities and, and ways that we want uh, to process information and the consequences of processing information in certain ways. Interesting. There's the, this e-learning textbook, Near, Near My Desk, uh, which I do use pretty regularly. And that's Clark and Myers' book, but that's somewhat older, you know. So what you wrote just now, I think, is a similar orientation. I like to say I've been an ad hoc instructional designer for 20 years, and I feel like in the last three months, uh, the rest of the world suddenly caught up to me. And suddenly everyone's thinking, how do I design this learning? How do I get Zoom up and running? How do I handle the tech complexities? That alone is an initial hurdle. And then from there, can you do it well? And then from there, to your point, is there friction? Does it lack the affordances that should make it easy for me as an instructor to curate an experience for my learners? All this stuff sounds uh, super relevant. I like to say zeitgeisty. So I think you're, you're sort of surfing uh, the collective consciousness these days uh, in terms of really meeting an unmet need, which is helping educators who are stretched in so many dimensions, uh, including just emotionally, it's hard to lean in, it's hard to lean into change. And then the amount of energy you have to exert to be an engaging online instructor is something we've also talked uh, quite a bit about. So like, I think you can get some of that active learning, but it takes a lot of exertion from the instructor. And then there's not as much feedback back from uh, the learners in that context. So, so yeah, I'd love to hear more. I don't know if you wanted to outline the, the principles. Also, any depth on active learning that is a little more textbook, if you will, if there is a way to understand what active learning oh. is. Yeah, so there's a bunch of different definitions. The simplest is learning by doing, which I don't like. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason I don't like it is that you need a goal. You need right. to have some learning outcome. So just having a discussion is not really active learning. There, mm -hmm. There's got to be some reason you're having the discussion, and it's got to be structured in a way 
that'll help you move closer to, to reaching that goal. Interesting. Otherwise, I don't, I don't think it really is active learning because I'm not sure there's really learning involved. Yeah. So, well, and, I, and I have heard the term, um, I think John Mayer was the guy uh, who was referenced, he said this, he talked about uh, stealth learning. Where, and this is sort of the notion of edutainment as well, where I have an entertaining, you know, like a leisure experience. And then at the end of the leisure experience, I actually learned. There might've been intent on the designer's part to say, we'll provide something entertaining, but then hopefully this message will also get out to the learner. But in that case, it wouldn't really be active learning unless I said, I'm gonna watch this series to learn these things. Like the, the learner needs intent. I'm not sure. I'm very outcomes oriented. The learner ends up having learned something, whether they wanted to or not, it was still right. active learning. If they, they, they learned it, they acquired it via doing something. But the measurement so, part then becomes important. Right. 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 So from my point of view, this is where the teaching and learning come together. Mm -hmm. That from the instructor's point of view, the teacher's point of view, you want to have clear learning outcomes. You want to know what it is you're trying to teach them to do. Right. right. And from, the learner's point of view, as long as they come out with that learning outcome, mm -hmm. they, they almost definitionally learned it. Right, right. So, so part of what's going on, just go back one of my, go to one of my principles here, sure, sure. is a principle of deep processing. Mm. It turns out, let me ask you a question. I may have asked you this before. I don't remember. At the end of the day, did I ask you about this? Yes, you did. I remember. Yeah. yeah. You remember yeah, yeah. it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So perfect. So I asked you at the end of the day how much... Uh, if you ever reflected back on on what happened during the day, yeah, yeah, yeah. What I, you did. Not, not, I did not too much, but more than the percentage. It was a relatively, I think it was like five percent, ten percent. That's number, right. right. So most people, that's right. Most people, uh, when you talk to them, and I've done this with thousands of people. Well, what I typically do is ask people if at the end of the day they reflect back on what they did during the day. Most people say they did. Then I ask them to raise their hands if they intentionally tried to memorize what they later remembered 50% of the time and nobody's ever done that. Right. So, and then I say, all right, how about 25%? I think I have now three that have said that. And then I go down in 5% increments and it's about 5% yeah. uh, is the modal number that is estimated for how much you try to remember yeah. what you actually do remember at the end of the day when you think back over the day. Right. And the reason for that is deep processing. And the reason you, Mike, remember this example is because by my asking you to think about it, right. you processed it. And it turns out a lot of our memory is just a byproduct yeah. of deep processing. Right. So you can, you can build this into asynchronous lesson plans. Mm -hmm. As long as there's some kind of a work product mm -hmm. or consequence that they're going to get feedback on so that they're going to be motivated to do it, yeah. You can get people to do deep processing. One of the interconnections is another principle called deliberate practice. With Anders Ericsson really developed. The, the, the key example is if you're learning a foreign language, you might get a tutor and say a word, try to get the pronunciation right, and then the tutor would say it back correctly. And then deliberate practice is about listening to the disparity between what you said and what the tutor said, and then saying it again, trying to minimize, reduce the delta, the difference between what you initially said and what the tutor said. Yeah. So it's not just saying it over and over again. It's not just practice. It's deliberate. You're consciously monitoring and trying to improve. So you, you need feedback for that. But it, it turns out some of the feedback can be self-generated. Really good 
golfers in a tournament. The, the day before, apparently, they often will play the course. And they'll sometimes do a, a hole like five or six times shots in the same hole to get feedback from themselves just to see how they did and notice what they did, what the consequences were mm -hmm. so they can tune themselves up for what they should do in the tournament. Mm -hmm. Or Winston Churchill used to give a speech to himself in a mirror. Right. So he knew he, he already, he had internalized the standards. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he can give himself feedback. So it's amazing. Yeah. As it's long as of, you externalize it. It reminds yeah. me of two things. When I listen back to this podcast, I'm getting feedback on my own performance. Mm. And then I am using it to get better. The other example, it reminds me of practicing my free throws, where is the ball coming off the tips of my fingers? How am I lining it up? And you get very um, methodical to the point. And then you're measuring. The nice thing about the free throw shooting is you can keep track of your percentage. So you can tweak and adjust. But it does, it almost seems like that methodical understanding of your own performance and then, and then understanding the feedback as you, as you adjust to try to get better. Yeah. The world can give you the feedback. You throw towards a hoop and you hit it on the rim. Yeah. And as long as you paid attention to what you did, yeah, you can use the feedback to try to correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah. There, this can be used also asynchronously, by the way. Right. I mean, you can have people do some kind of an exercise or solve a problem, right. post the answer on a bulletin board, and then the next student who finishes, you'll, you'll swap, you'll grade ah. them and they'll grade you. Ah. So this can all be done asynchronously and you can get feedback that'll help you correct. I like where you went with asynchronous too, because for me, when I think asynchronous, I think not human mediated, but you just mean not synchronous. So, right. so that means if there is a message board or you know, Slack channel or yeah. um, a, a parallel feedback, and it's human, and even in this case, maybe peer-to-peer, -peer, which I right. think is, is really interesting because I think that's more emotionally charged. We are social animals. Uh, I remember we even talked about this on our, our last conversation, is that adding some social valence, some social capital to uh, what's in it for me, why am I motivated, is a really critical component. And that leads to the third ah, principle I'll mention. Yeah. Yeah. which is incentives and consequences mm -hmm. are really important. Mm -hmm. So and a lot of the consequences are social. Mm -hmm. That is, you're yes. going to do something because of how other people are going to reward it or not, right, right. depending on what you do. And incentives are anticipating, mm -hmm. sort of looking ahead what the consequences would be. So you can design active learning mm -hmm. with incentives and consequences in mind from the very beginning mm -hmm. by setting up breakout groups where Students have to do something yeah, as I, part I have, of the, yeah. I have to say my wife, lover, lover, lover dearly, has uh, heard me talk about BATNAs on a few occasions based on our <laughs> previous uh, conversation. I, I really did enjoy how you brought example, like real life examples. There was relevance to the, the way in which things were taught. Even when I was talking before about shooting baskets, the idea of turn this into something that is personally relevant uh, to me is really interesting, which relates to the consequences and, and, and benefits and motivation. Any examples in light of the, the race to Zoom that are either illustrative of doing it well or, or illustrative of not really paying attention to uh, incentives and consequences? Well, the typical way of just giving a lecture into a camera is a mm -hmm. beautiful example of not doing it well. Mm -hmm. Because there are no incentives to pay attention, mm -hmm. 
um, assuming that you can read the material book or something like that for a test. I mean, right. the biggest incentives and consequences is traditional education or tests, right? Right, right. People, uh, so if there's other ways of learning this stuff, um, there's no incentive or consequences to, to listen to a lecture. Well, one exception I would say is if you have an entertaining instructor, if you have an, an engaging motivation, the incentive is to also a surprising instructor. It's like at some point I might just do something crazy. You know, it's like, oh my God, I gotta, I gotta keep watching to see uh, what this guy's gonna do. And like, yeah. whether, that, whether that's good or bad, I think that's part of why there is a certain magic to live that, that I think is an incentive for the learner to, to keep watching where I think to do that well asynchronously in terms of media, I think that that's why I liked the peer-to-peer, -peer, you know, social uh, message board, Slack channel type stuff I find really interesting. But I think the video instruction to design it in such a way that it can maintain the learner's attention, it, I think is challenging. So I, yeah, I, I must say, hearing you talk about instructors being entertaining makes me take pause because you look at the typical kind of uh, instructor professor evaluation at the end of the right. course and they fill it out, yeah. which is a lot of it is, you know, how interesting right. was it? And, all, and think of the incentives and consequences for the professor. Right. I mean, that's a way, think about it in terms of deliberate practice. You're giving them the wrong signal back. Wow, yeah. You're shaping them to try to be more of an entertainer right. and less of somebody who actually is teaching them what they should know. Right. And by the way, you should decide whether those learning outcomes are worth teaching or not in advance. Right, right. If they're not going to be worth teaching, don't bother teaching them, right, obviously. Right, right, so right. it should be patently obvious that this material is worth learning because it's going to help you right. in your life and your work and so on. And if right. it's not obvious, then I don't know why you're taking the course. Of well, course, I mean, yeah, right, I think there are, yeah, there are intrinsic and extrinsic uh, motivations now, I think. Uh, true. You know, that, so the, the idea is like, Great teaching frequently unlocks the uh, intrinsic value of learning the material, and that that frequently is human mediated. That fre frequently, I, I think you do it asynchronously, but I, I think there is a certain level of inspiration, even if it's you know five percent of what you're doing, ten percent of what you're doing. I, I think it's a crit critical uh, component. So I, I wonder. I mean, that's rationale behind a liberal arts education. Mm -hmm which I, I think is wonderful if you are from a privileged background and have the luxury of being able to spend all that time just because it's going to be interesting and make you a better, more interesting right. person. I mean, I personally think a lot of that stuff that makes you a better rounded person you can do on your own or yeah. with other people voluntarily, like in book groups and things like that. Yeah. And that it, it is a luxury that not everybody has. Right. So I'm thinking that for me, and this is part of what Foundry College is about, yeah. A lot of education is really helping people have better lives, mm -hmm. which is not a luxury. It's right. really sort of survival. It's flur It's more than survival. It's being able to thrive. Right, right. And they, they need the tools for that. And that's yeah. what I'm interested in personally. Yeah. I'm not that, well, I'm, I mean, yeah, I'm not saying it's for everybody. I mean, there sure. is a place for a liberal arts education. Right. But I think it's for, it's not for everybody. Sure. I think my point is more the intrinsic value of, of doing what you love is something that I think is important for educators and, you know, for even just modeling it. Like I've talked about how I, throughout my teaching career, I love teaching math. And it's probably because I just 
I genuinely love math. I'm not ashamed of it. And I actually have fun with it. And I think that's, that was part of what sort of brought people in to feel more comfortable experiencing it. I'm a big, big proponent of focusing on the intrinsic rewards, intrinsic incentives, where you can, you know, is, is frequently long-term beneficial for motivation. And uh, particularly, regardless of where the learner is coming from, ultimately where they want to go, they ideally will derive some intrinsic value from it, or at least find some meaning in the work. I think that's another thing you were were talking to us about last time was meaningful work. Like, I think that is, I think it's an evolution. It's maybe it's not necessarily the teacher. It's more like the mentor or more the, the trusted guide, which I think is becoming more the, the, it's almost like the social emotional component of the learner's journey is the thing that, Frequently, I still believe we benefit from someone who's further down the road paying attention to us. Um, and that typically is more like a human to human um, connection. Oh, I, I agree with that. I, yeah. I, I think the, the worst part about most asynchronous instruction is it cuts that out. Yeah. There's very little human interaction. So I, th- I think you can insert that. Uh, some of it can be asynchronous, but yeah. you, you, you can also have hybrid cases where yeah. a lot of the asynchronous is kind of the run up. Right. And I'm not talking a flipped classroom where you do right. all the, the work beforehand and then do homework in class. Yeah. I'm talking about an opportunity to get feedback for delivered practice and yeah. ways of processing information more deeply and so forth. Yeah. And when, you, when you get together. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to, to, to read your book uh, because uh, I think it's also a really interesting time to expand our language. You know, even as I, as we were talking, I was just thinking about like flipped classroom and what do we mean by hybrid and you know, like what do we mean by asynchronous when I think there could be much more detail and specificity, you know, my, my comment before about ad hoc instructional design is, is kind of true. You know, like I've always been more on the making side of the learning interventions. So I generally try to stay current in terms of learning science, which is changing. And, you know, I'm a psychology guy long-term. So like I've been tracking that domain since, since I was in college, but, but it is interesting that there's an opportunity, I think, to get more sophisticated in how we talk about our interventions. And it sounds as though good design thinking, thoughtful design applied to a learning program is something that I talk about a lot on the show, but that's why it's, it's, it's wonderful to have you on because that's really been your track record, whether it was at Minerva or now at Foundry College. But what I, I think maybe we haven't had is as much like broad access to your point. Not everyone mm-hmm. has access to the proprietary platform or not everyone, you know, within their particular school district or university, they may have to use a particular tool. And it sounds like you're saying there are these abstracted principles and practices that apply regardless of what you're using. Totally right. And they they apply to all humans because the way the brain works. And it's in every learning situation you can apply them. Asynchronous. If you want to make a video, there are better and worse ways to make videos. Yeah, yeah. So that's an asynchronous mode where they watch them. Yeah. So, yeah, the same principles. And how many principles have we hit so far? Because I want to make sure, unless we Uh, I could edit it as a two-parter, but I want to make sure you and I get all six of them in. Cause, uh, cause they're, they're oh, great. let me tell you the ones really briefly then. I, I think I think we're about halfway through. We talked about incentives and consequences a yeah. little bit, yeah. deep processing and deliberate practice. So the other, the other three are something called dual coding. Yeah. 
Yes. Where, yeah. I like, I like that one. Yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty general. It's general to showing in general right. versus telling is a way right. to think about it. Mm -hmm. So it's typically talked about in terms of pictures and words. Yes. So you're going to remember a lot more. But I, it's actually yeah. more general than that. Yeah, I love this one because as a podcaster, I talk about this one all the time because I basically say, you know, we're just communicating to our listeners in an auditory format. And, and it's basically auditory and text are similar in how we process them. So like the way I, I listen to the oral content, I hear the voice, I could read a transcript of the conversation, but that wouldn't actually add any value. What I'm always fascinated is fascinated by is the picture superiority effect. Again, as a podcaster, the idea that if I'm trying to teach something just with audio, what picture should I pair What visual stimuli should I pair with it so that the learner is processing that using more than one uh, perceptual, perceptual modality, you know? Yeah, but you know, you can have the learner supply their own visual through For visual sure. mental imagery. Yes. So it, it turns out that's incredibly effective. I mean, mm -hmm. you can like double your memory capacity if you start yes. visualizing stuff. You know? Right. I remember talking to Yuki Tirada from Edutopia because he was talking about a research about, um, I think, teaching while telling, having your students draw a bicycle before yeah. you show them why the bicycle is designed a particular way. If you have people draw it, and this is almost like the feedback thing you were talking about too, that yeah. frequently right. people will learn the concept because they'll get it wrong right in, a, in an interesting way yeah Ma making errors is a really important part of learning mm -hmm. and that that's this business about desirable difficulty you you gotta yes. Yes. be challenged but not too much or you just mm -hmm. get frustrated mm -hmm. not too little you get bored yeah so that, that's really about optimal processing mm -hmm. so dual coding is you got to set it up so that they process the visual stuff and the verbal stuff as much as possible I also, uh, full disclosure, Stephen, I, I do joke about being an olfactory learner, and uh, I like to talk about uh, being a kinesthetic learner, too. Those are my two favorite things to joke about. But uh, does that work in terms of dual coding? I, I, well, smell oh, yeah. is, is famously uh, associated with, like, the hippocampus and the olfactory yeah. bulb and like, That's all right. that kind of stuff. Oh, sure. But, uh, but, like, it doesn't matter the modality. It's just we're... We get the most information as a learner, I think, through either our visual or... Uh, auditory, right? Is that, 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 is, that is correct, but yeah. it basically the more the better in terms of yeah. modalities, yeah. And, they, and especially if you get them so they're interrelated, you know, yeah. they're not just isolated. Okay, cool. So, so the Kickstarter for Trending in Education Smell-O-Vision Edition is, uh, <laughs> is still in play. Good, okay. That's good. I, I, I suspect there are going to be some people who are going to say that idea stinks, but let's not go there. <laughs> okay, so Dual coding, showing and telling, you want to do both. And then chunking is a really important one that we take in like three or four units. Yeah. So, so when you mentioned something earlier about friction. A, a problem that a lot of faculty were facing uh, is they had these lecture notes all set up for their traditional lectures. And so they just read them into the, the camera. Right. And it, it probably wasn't optimal when they were doing it live, but there was an opportunity for nonverbal uh, interaction you could see what the students were doing it, it whatever you knew when to pause you know whatever in a way that yeah. it's harder online right, right. so a way to take your lecture notes and stiff mm -hmm. them up so they can be put online mm -hmm. is take your exams mm -hmm. and look at 
every question and then figure out where it was answered in your lectures. And think about anything that wasn't fed into an exam question, think about why you have it there. Because presumably the exam questions are testing what was important, the learning outcomes. And everything else unclear. So what you may want to think about is, A, how do the key pieces of information that led to exam questions cluster, chunk, okay? And, and think about where to put active learning exercises at the end of each of these big chunks. Yeah. And then, B, what to eliminate. Mm -hmm. So chunking is, is really useful in terms of how you organize a lecture and how you would sort of upload it. That's interesting, too, because I've always heard, um, maybe it's based on the original research, wasn't it seven plus or minus two was the original? Yeah, George Miller, and that turns out to be wrong. That's interesting. So it's, it's fewer than that. Yeah, yeah. There's a nice review by someone named Cowan. It's really three or four. Yeah. Um, yeah that's huge, though. I mean, and that's, that's really interesting how the, the popular conception, yeah. based, based on good research, you know, not knocking Miller's research at the time, if, you know, I'm sure it was, it's probably more the application of it or whatever science continues to, to evolve and disprove what was yeah. canon. But it's really interesting that, you know, I knew seven plus or minus two, that's first year, uh, first year psych. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately. And then, and then th things change, you know, so. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, right. Well, here's the tricky part. Each of those units itself can have units. Mm. So that's, that's why it's hard sometimes to estimate the total. Yeah. Because, you know, each chunk, as it were, like a you know, prefix for a telephone number. Exactly. It's got th three digits in it. Yeah. So in each of those digits, if you wrote them down, has segments, right? And, you know, right. vertical and horizontal. Ah. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, the whole chunking thing is hierarchical. I mean, the beautiful yeah. example of this is this guy who's trained up so he could memorize 79 random digits, read one every second. Wow. Yeah, uh, Erickson did this when he was working with Bill Chase as a graduate student. Huh. They, they brought in this undergraduate and asked him to sit down volunteer yeah. and listen to uh, digits yeah. a year and a half he came at least three times a week so the first session they read him one digit he could yeah. repeat it back just fine nice. then they gave him two digits random does he, he get like a, does he get a snack based on the number of digits or like there's no what no, is it, no he, yeah. well he was he was intrinsically motivated for all i know they paid him i don't yeah. actually know if he was yeah. paid or not but the point is over time, he figured out ways to organize digits. Mm. He was a marathon runner, ah. and he would map the digits into times. Mm. So, you know, one second for, oh, you know, wow. whatever. Yeah. I mean, one yeah. minute for 42 seconds, point three or something. He mm. would map them in and then remember segments of races mm. and organize them up into a hypothetical marathon he could have run. Wow, it's like the method of loci, right? Like the yeah, yeah, that's another yeah, way you yeah. can do it. Yeah, yeah. But so he worked out this way where he was able at the end to take 79, one every second randomly wow. and organize them up. Yeah. And it's very hierarchical. Yeah. So, you know, little times and then times add up to a segment and then yeah. segments would end up to a I'm always amazed what the mind can do on seemingly irrelevant tasks. But like if you can motivate it, yeah. advance, it advances science. You know, like this ultimately is a net benefit because are you saying this is the, the related research that kind of debunked the, the science? Yeah, because it, yeah. it turned out it turns out it's fours. Mm. That is you got groups of three or four and then yeah. super groups of those three or yeah. four on top of those and so on. It's very hierarchical. It kind of makes sense so. in terms of even like designing a presentation or trying to get enough information out. You don't want to say, 
I have seven things to tell you today in my lecture yeah. because people are going to kind of check out because they don't even know what do I really need to pay attention to. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So, so my six principles is pushing it. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, true. Yeah. I know, but it, but looking at the literature, it's, I used to have 16. I was able to boil them down and I realized some of them weren't actually independent principles. They were actually combinations uh, of principles. Tree, tree structure up from the six into uh, three or four. I did it from the 16. I got to six. You gotta have boundaries. The best I could do. The best <laughs> so I getting, could do. So we're getting there though, right? So uh, yep. that was chunking. There you go. You got to remember chunking. If you forget chunking, you're not paying attention. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There you are. So the, the last one is uh, associations. Okay. And, and one, it's a, they're, they're important for organizing. So some chunking is done via associations, yeah. but also for storing it and also for digging it out later. Yeah. So associations are really important for learning. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons associations are so important is that we later remember things based on cues mm -hmm. that prompt us. So context really important. The more different context you can learn things in, the better. Yeah, yeah. Well, associations also makes me think of, and tell me, correct me if I'm wrong, but it is also where when you're teaching by analogy or you're, you're trying yeah. to associate with, also good storytelling frequently is, is, is all about associations. And um, chunking. And, and chunking, yep. yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. Yep, so yep, that's right. This, this is... Uh, I'm excited. So what's the, how is the book going to be released? What's the, what kind of, I don't know. I did something really weird. I, I published, I don't know how many books, well over a dozen. I haven't counted, but mm -hmm. um, this is the first one. Oh, that's not true. The very first book I ever wrote, which called image and mind mm -hmm. published in 1980. Right. Um, I wrote the entire thing beforehand. It was like uh, initially 900 pages. I cut it the way back. Wow. Um, well, I cut it way back. But this one is the only other book since then that I've actually been going to write the whole thing first mm. and then we'll get a contract for it. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. So uh, book publishers uh, list, listen in, you know, there, and it's interesting in terms of format too, as you're describing it. One thing that we have talked a lot about on the show is like the, you know, what is a book nowadays and how do people consume their information? Is it, you know, is it through a book? Is it through a workbook? Could it be an online experience? You know, like the, the blending is interesting. So, so for you as a, as a researcher and a, and a thinker, in, in some ways there's, there's more opportunity now to think about how do you just spread the word? You know, the book, is, the book obviously right. is an organizing uh, structure that, that'll get you, you know, that, it's great that you have it. It's really sort of the, the, the starting place in a lot of ways, but it's exciting to think in, this day and age, how many formats and touch points you can True. expand the outreach. Have you thought about that at all? Yeah, quite a bit. Yeah. Unclear. That's one of the yeah. reasons I didn't just do the traditional thing from the beginning. That is interesting just to think about how you could get the word out in this day and age, even using the principles, using the six principles to communicate the six principles out, you know? Yeah. Well, that's right. It's kind of recursive. That, yeah, yeah. In fact, in the book, I do a lot of that. I yeah. actually use the principles to teach the principles, but I don't often point it out. But the, the key really is combinations of these principles. That's where you get really the power. Yeah. That you want to do deep processing with the deliberate practice for feedback, yeah. but you want to organize it in advance using the chunking. Mm -hmm. You're really well off if you can show as well as tell using yeah. dual processing. And of course, part of the goal is to set up associations. Yeah. So, what, I, what I'd love to see maybe uh, coming out of this will be interesting too is, uh, you know, 
could there could we establish a community of practice uh, among educators who are drawing from these principles to provide some peer-to-peer feedback interaction? So, um, wow, great certainly, idea. certainly among our listeners, any any of you who are educators or ad hoc instructional designers, many more of us are wearing those hats these days. This book will be coming out. We'll sort out the best way to get the principles out there. We'll continue to talk about them when we can on the show. We'll love to get Stephen back as often as possible. But uh, this is the type of information that really uh, will help you move the needle as uh, someone who's trying to navigate these tumultuous times of ours. And uh, it's really wonderful, uh, Stephen, that we have folks like yourself who are able to both withstand the the tumults and then also formulate some, some really useful uh, thinking useful tools that hopefully people out in the world will, will find, find relevant and engaging. Any final thoughts for our listeners? Well, just once again to thank you, Mike. This has been stimulating, interesting um, conversation. And I really appreciate your interest and time. And I look forward to at some point actually meeting you in the flesh. Yeah, uh, we're, we're, in the same, we're in the same city, so you never know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Wonderful. well, let's, let's hope that we continue making progress on containing this plague. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, so uh, so our listeners, uh, Dr. Stephen Coslin, president and founder of Foundry College, uh, also has written numerous books and has a new book coming. Working title one more time, Stephen? Uh, Active Learning in the Digital Age, which is probably a, a mouthful, so it might end up being something simpler, but that's the idea behind it. Yeah, some great active learning, some great stuff shared on today's show. We'll be back again soon on Trending in Education. 